Her work has illuminated stages across the country and on Broadway since the 1980s, and her most familiar credits include the 1989 revival of Gypsy, Aida, Susicle, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, Altar Boys, The Coast of Utopia, most recently the Broadway productions of The Addams Family and Elf, and the upcoming Sister Act. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I hope you took careful note of my use of the word illuminated, because today's guest is the lighting designer, Natasha Katz. Welcome. Thank you. I'm going to start by quoting. We, I always try to do a good bit of research and reading, and of course, there's not always tons on designers that I can find. And I was particularly amused to find the one main source, of course, is live design online. It used to be lighting dimensions, I think, That's once right. upon a time. And, and it gave me such insight into you with phrases like, the light boxes are lit from the inside using RD lighting click strip and architectural festoon strip with MR11 bulbs focused on the shoes and bags. And then referred to the Verilite programmer working with you as using shutter cuts in the gobo shots of the VL6Bs and VL7s, including a three-quarter circle and a rectangle for strong paths of light. Now, we're not going to talk like that for an hour. <laughs> no, that doesn't sound like very exciting. <laughs> so let me ask you, just broadly to start, what attracted you to lighting design? Mm, good question. Because, you know, I've uh, I've always thought I can't imagine and maybe some other lighting designer could walk in here and tell you otherwise that anybody is born with a desire to be a lighting designer. So I – for me, I grew up in New York City, born and bred in Manhattan and I went to the theater all the time as a – I went to the theater all the time. Uh, my parents took me to the theater. So um, I, all, I, really what I wanted to do was work in the theater. That was my great dream. And I never wanted to act. I wanted to something else. And I couldn't figure out what that something else was. Did you do stuff in high school? A little bit, not much. So you were I, just watching it up there on the stage for years. Yeah, You know, I didn't do it in high school because um, it – it was a very – as high schools go, all high school, the world of cliques, it was its own clique, which sort of uh, – to me, it was more of a my own personal dream that I wanted it to sort of keep it to myself until I could find a way that I could sort of fulfill it. And I didn't know what that fulfillment was at all in high school. You look perplexed by that. Well, I'm curious then when you went to college – you went to Oberlin. Did you go saying, I'm going to look to study theater? Yes, I did. Well, two things happened. When I got into 12th grade, uh, my school required a community service. Which in, So in that community service, I did work for an off-Broadway theater in New York City. Theater company anymore. It's definitely not around. So then I got the taste of it from something other than being an audience member. So I definitely went to Oberlin with the idea – uh, because I had thought of going to a school that had a lot more theater, but I went to Oberlin with the idea of uh, taking a lot of theater courses there, knowing that it was a small school, a liberal arts school, a school – it had a conservatory. There were a lot of shows. So I started to um, work in the theater there. And I started doing a little lighting design, a little stage management, a lot of things backstage. And then they had a program which was, I would say, uh, life-changing for me. You know, there are those moments along our careers that change things for you. 
and it was called the Great Lakes College Association. So I was able to, uh, I don't think it exists anymore, I, I was able to take a semester off from Oberlin and get full credit and I worked for a lighting designer whose name is Roger Morgan, a great lighting designer. And he was working on I Remember Mama with Lee Volman, and he allowed me to follow him during that period of time for school credit. I went down to Philadelphia and New York City and worked on the show as an intern, essentially. So um, when I say life-changing, it was for all sorts of reasons. I met a lot of people. I started to learn that I really enjoyed lighting design, and I also learned how a Broadway musical was put on. What did you actually – you say you followed him. You weren't his assistant per se. So do you actually get to do anything or was it really an observership? A completely an observership, although I will never forget the first day. Uh, it was completely – he took me to every meeting. I mean he was so incredibly generous to me. So I went to every meeting he had with Martin Charnin. Who directed. Uh, who directed it and then every meeting with the next director that came in. I mean I really was in a show where there was a lot of turmoil. I was allowed into all the rehearsals with Lee Volman, Richard Rogers. I mean it was really – Extraordinary. I was 18 years old, 18, 19 years old. And then I really just watched. Honestly, I just watched. Every once in a while, they would give me a task to do. And mm -hmm. I mean, I was thrilled to do it, but I really just watched. So in terms of watching, I mean, you're watching the whole show, as you say. You got to see how a musical got put together. How much of what Roger was doing did you understand at the time? Because as I jokingly dealt with at the beginning, there's an enormous technical aspect to lighting design as well as an enormous creative and artistic task. The artistic you may have had a sense of. Did you did you start to understand the technical? Oh, ab absolutely. And also I'm being a little uh, – my time at Oberlin, I took lighting classes. Okay. So I knew what Alico was. I mean I knew technically – what I was getting into. I didn't come in completely cold. Okay. So I definitely had a lot of background by then. Got it. So Roger, I I'm, talk about generosity. I literally sat next to him and his assistant at the time, Marsha Madeira, and watched them design the show. And Roger would put a light down. And I mean, it was before moving lights. It was his way of designing. And we'd go scene by scene and he'd, he'd lay down a piece of tracing paper and he'd say, OK, we need to light this scene. So we need a light here. We need a light here. We need a light here. And then he'd take the tracing paper off and we'd go to the next scene. He'd say, I need a light here. I need a light here. I need a light here. And then I was explained how all the paperwork was done. I mean, I really got I – got, um, I got a big lesson on how the Broadway world worked. And was this – at the beginning of the computerized lighting or was computerized lighting even on the table yet? They had computerized lighting boards. I think we were – it was still young but I, it was a computerized lighting board. Hmm. It was 1977 I think was Theron with a chorus line. So, uh, so maybe that was years. 81, yeah. something like that. It may have even been 79, 80. I don't really know what year that was. Okay. So you, you have this experience. So what semester, what year were you when you went off and did this? It was my junior year at Oberlin. OK. So you go back to school. Right. Have you suddenly said, I'm going to be a lighting designer? Is that what the last three semesters was going to be? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean I met, I met um, 
I don't want to overuse the word generous, but really I met a lot of people. It, I guess that you call that networking today, but I met a lot of people that um, asked me when I came back, they said, when you get out of school, we'd like to hire you. And so I made a lot of connections and I realized that um, it was definitely something that I wanted to do. I mean, by then I started to think I want to be a lighting designer. This is a great way into a business that I love. So you were from New York. You went out to Oberlin to take this observership in New York. And so presumably, unlike a lot of stories we hear on this program, you were able to just go right back to New York and with these connections you'd made, start finding some work. That You know, it is what I did. I would say when people say to me, what's my training, I would call it on-the-job training. I mean, I learned plenty at Oberlin. There's no question about it. But really, the way I learned about what I do is by doing it. Hmm. So I didn't go to graduate school. I, it, I'm definitely – it's on-the-job training. So who beyond Roger – you said there were other people you met who offered you jobs. What were those first jobs when you got out of school? Wow. I haven't thought about it in a while. I worked that – one of those summers, I worked for Brand Farron who – who is a special effects expert, as right. I recall, did the Frankenstein on Broadway in the early 80s. That's and, right. And and also did the movie Altered States. That's right. He was working yeah. on the movie at the time when I worked for him. Okay. But I was young and eager. And I would say even today that eagerness and a love of the business is 90% of the hope of success, actually. Hmm. I mean, there's nothing that I, there's nothing that I wouldn't have done. You know, Bran asked me to drive to the airport to pick somebody up. Well, I got right in the van and drove to the airport and picked somebody up. I mean, that was the kind of work that I did. So at what point did you start – stop being – I mean, that sounds like, forgive the expression, Gal Friday a little bit or it was. whatever came your way. When did you officially become an assistant okay. lighting designer? Yeah, Roger had an assistant named Marsha Madeira who she really – taught me a lot of um, what I knew. Uh, I took the union exam because you really couldn't work on Broadway. Uh, you still can't unless you take the exam. And I took it two years later and um, right away Roger hired me to do um, Agnes of God. I was the assistant, um, almost an eagle. Then I worked with Marsha right away on Nine and um, my one and only. And uh, Ken Billington hired me to do um, an almost – Perfect person with that's not the name of it. It was with Phyllis Newman. I can't remember the name. I'm sure you do. But um, that one's not coming to me fast. Yeah, Sorry. I know. I'm now. I'm like it's <laughs> like I'm going down memory lane. But um, you know, so because uh, I had met Ken through Marsha Madeira, it was you know it was a small group of people then. I think I don't know if it's smaller than now. And the role of the assistant was different. To put a musical on took a shorter period of time than it does now. Hmm. Or a play even. Why do you think that is? I think that there are a couple of reasons. I think that the technology has caused uh, the technology and automation, meaning the scenery moving, depending on what audience is listening to this. I guess I should explain what that means. So the, to make the scenery move is all computerized now, so that takes a little bit longer. The lighting is uh, has a lot of uh, automated lighting. That takes a little bit longer. And um, – you know, that's not the only reason. I think there's a psychological reason for it too. I think certain people, certain directors want more time to tech a show. 
than other directors. Certain directors and producers want more time in previews than other directors and producers. So it's case by case, but there are a lot of shows that do take a longer time. Okay. Well, I took a tangent there and you were, we were talking about all of the assisting that you'd done. When did you get your first gig as a lighting designer? I was 24 years old. I had done a um, Roger Morgan once again. He ha- he wasn't able to do a job out at, in the Cleveland Playhouse. So he asked me to do it instead of him. And it was a big job for me. It was with a director named Clifford Williams who has since died, unfortunately. And um, we had a sort of tumultuous experience because really I was too young to take on a job as big as I took on. What was the show? It was A Child's Christmas in Wales at the Ohio Theater in um, Cleveland. And then what happened after that was sometimes a great fight between a director and a lighting designer can bring two people together in a very nice way. And the show ended up looking beautiful. And I got back to New York and I don't know, maybe four months later, this story's worth it. I, I, I think it is worth it. I got a letter from a producer named Arthur Cantor. And the letter was typewritten on a typewriter. And it said, we'd like you to do, Clifford Williams is directing this, dear Natasha, Clifford Williams is directing this Broadway show and um, we'd like you to be the lighting designer. Except that the typewriter was so old that the letter A didn't type. So it was like, this has got to be a joke. I mean, I didn't even believe that it was possible. And, you know, so it was like, der. (laughs) It was like, can you hear me now? (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. So there was a telephone number, no A's in the telephone number, and I called the number, and it wasn't a joke at all. And so the first show I did was um, Pack of Lies. And the plus for me was that I had been around Broadway a lot as an assistant, so I knew a lot of the people. And, again, you know, I was – I, I I wouldn't say I was too young to have done the job, but I certainly was green. But I had a lot of support from a lot of people. And Ralph Coltide did the scenery. Um, Rosemary Harris was in it. And um, actually, it was a great show. So that was my first Broadway show. You mentioned earlier Theron Musser, who certainly was a highly influential lighting designer. Was it difficult? It was not unheard of to have female lighting designers, but – was there any difficulty in terms of being, as you've said, a very young woman coming into working on Broadway as a designer? You know, um, uh, no. I really never, ever, ever felt that. Hmm. I think that that actually has changed recently because lighting you mean, design – it's gotten worse? I think it's gotten worse. Really? I do. I do. I think that uh, – I don't know. I haven't been able to sort of – synthesize these thoughts in my own head. But lighting design in many ways was – it wasn't started by women for sure because – but there was a point where Peggy Clark, who was a lighting designer, wasn't allowed to be on stage. Women only could sit in the audience and tell the electricians what to do. I don't know what year that was. We can go back and try to figure it all out for another um, episode of this. <laughs> but what happened was there were a lot of male lighting designers who – and then along came Jean Rosenthal. I mean not to do too much history right here. And then 
our business shifted and really became a business of women. It was Jean Rosenthal. It was Peggy Clark. It was Arden Fingerhut. It was Theron Musser. There were, it was, um, you know, you know, the joke is, is that because it was a business started by women, that's why we're so underpaid. It's mm. just a lighting designer joke. You can edit that out if you need to. No, it, but, <laughs> but, but look, now, I'm familiar at least on the Lord contracts once upon a time. Maybe it's changed. The set designer and the costume designer minimums were one thing and the lighting designer minimum was something else and it was less. Yeah, that's exactly right. Hmm. That's right. So um, – but I think maybe what's happened now, I, I really don't know because uh, if you look around, there aren't a lot of women lighting designers working on Broadway. I don't know if it has to do with the technology. I don't know if it just has to do with that it became a higher paying business. I, I don't have the answer to it. I, um, but I think it's changed. Hmm. I never, ever felt from a stagehand to a producer that they didn't want to hire me because I was a woman. Hmm. So pack of lies. I was could have been in a complete <laughs> denial. <laughs> Maybe, but, but obviously you'd remember if it was traumatic. It wasn't. It so, was anything but. There you go. So, Pack of Lies, you've got your first Broadway credit at a young age. Um, you'd networked through the people you'd met through Roger and assisting, et cetera, et cetera. How did you start to develop relationships with directors and understand the kind of dialogue you needed to have with the director to do the job? That's a really good question because I think that for me, because it was on the job training, that uh, that's not something I had a lot of experience with. I was able to watch Roger. I was able to, I guess it uh, by watching all those people is how I learned to have that dialogue. I guess it was the same thing. It was on the job training, and then how? And then the directors that I met, you know. Another huge break in my life was the Gypsy, and you mentioned 1989. I didn't even remember the year. Well, I knew Arthur Lawrence all the way back from the show I did with Phyllis Newman. He directed that show that I was Ken Billington's assistant on. So, um, and then I had worked for Jules Fisher on La Cage of Fall, which was another huge turning point in my career. And I spent a lot of time with Arthur. And then Jules and Arthur both said that I was ready to design a Broadway musical. So, you know, I think it's sort of like that, that you meet directors. At least that's how I did and always have. We're talking so much about Broadway, and there certainly was off-Broadway work in here, second stage, the public. Did you have the point in your career where you were also going out and doing a lot of regional shows? You mentioned that first show in Cleveland. Yeah. Or were you really a New York gal? No, it's a, another good question, Howard, because um, I spent a lot of time in regional theater. All I'm going to do today, I think, is talk about turning points. Another big one through Roger, I met Eugene Lee, and he and Adrian the Hall. set designer. He's set designer, yeah, thank you. And um, Eugene was just starting the Dallas Theater Center with Adrian Hall at the time. Adrian, they had been together up at Trinity Rep for right. years. That's right. And, so. and then Adrian took over the Dallas Theater Center and Eugene went down there with him, redesigned the theater. So I did – I must have done 30 shows down at the Dallas Theater Center. Wow. And then uh, there are other uh, regional theaters that uh, – I've worked in a lot of regional theaters. You mentioned the um, Hartford Stage. I worked there on a show – I worked at the ART. I did four shows up there. I mean, that was a real training ground because there is something to not being in New York and experimenting and the schedule is very fast. So that was a great training ground. 
Off-Broadway for me, I used to do a ton of Off-Broadway. I loved doing it. I loved the smell of those Off-Broadway theaters, and they were all kind of dingy. And then all of a sudden, out-sprouted kind of a fantastic show out of what you thought would never possibly – it's impossible that in this, like, space with, you know, cords hanging and dust and all this that you can make a show in there. So I love working in all those places, actually. So they were a huge part of my training. Over the course of your career, I imagine one of the things that you had to do and anyone would have to do is keep up on technology. How much do you have to literally just read trade journals to know what's coming out and what you can use? Because the tools keep changing. You know, it's super important. It's like Super, super important, to, at least to me. I don't think every lighting designer would say the same thing that I'm saying. But I like to – I definitely like to know what all the new technology is. I also like to know how it works because when you're in the theater and somebody – it just helps in terms of pushing a process along. It has one more voice in, well, did you plug it in? Did you remember to? Did you when something doesn't work? So it's tr reading trade magazines. It's definitely talking to other people, electricians especially, other lighting designers. I mean, I do believe the more dialogue that we can have as lighting designers among ourselves, nothing could be better because th that information, the more it flows out there, the more companies get to sell their lights, the more we get to use better lights, all these good things start coming from it. So it does take a lot of work in some ways, but you know, if you enjoy it, then it's fun. But it's not like how you started this interview. I don't talk about shutter cuts and <laughs> click strip and things like that. Well, that leads me perfectly to a question, which is when you are approached to do a show, what helps you to make a decision about whether or not to do that show? Surely it's not what technology you get to play. It never is for me. Actually, it's never about the technology. Ever, never, ever. It's really – I mean we – in a funny way, you had mentioned earlier on about the art versus – um, the technical. Aspects. The technical, yeah. yeah, that's exactly. The technology is only there to serve it. So if it can serve it, then I want to know what it is. But um, it's the there's no question that the art comes first. In terms of picking a show, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons that I would pick a show. Loving a show, a director, certain other people that are working on the show. If I've worked on with people before, I mean, if the show's intriguing to me, I mean, well, how much is it? I like this story and I want to be part of telling this story. How much of it is I've worked with this director and we have a good relationship and I'll I'll help him tell the story? There's no clear answer to that. I mean there are shows that I've worked on with directors that I love but I have to haven't really loved the show. Mm -hmm. But I – you know, f another thing that happens for me is that what starts to happen is that you, you – if you love the business, I guess, you start to love the show anyway. So you're working with the director but didn't really like the show so much and then all of a sudden you love the show. So um, all, different things happen when you start to work with the director and the set designer. It takes on a life of its own and then uh, when I say a life of its own, all of a sudden when I read the script, I had no idea 
that the director was thinking this or that the set designer might have been thinking that or that the costumes were going to be of a certain period. And all of a sudden, the project becomes more exciting, which is not to say that there aren't times that you start on a project and you're very excited by it. And there is funny enough this moment on some shows where you go, uh-oh, and the uh-oh has to do with a lot of things. This is a group of people that's never going to get along. The show really can't be fixed. Or, um, God, get me out of this city. I have terrible housing. I hate it here. I mean, there there are reasons to... I don't know if you're talking about Broadway or anything. Yeah. Because ultimately, a show is a show. Where you do it, what you're, you know, what you may have to spend on it may change. The nature of the house may change, but it's still a play, a musical. When do you come into the process in terms of the work with a director and designer, the other designers? Are you there from the very beginning and consulted from the very beginning? Uh, it's also case by case, but I would say 85 percent of the time – I'm not, and 15% of the time I am. 85% of the time they have the work with the set designer gets to a certain point and then I'm asked to join. And the other 15% of the time, maybe I'm maybe it's 60, 40, but the other the other part of it, I'm am there from the very beginning. And um And is that a byproduct of how the director sees the process, how the other designers see the process, where is the variable coming from? I don't mean to uh, like not answer your questions directly, but none of them have a direct answer, which is it can be all of those things, which is it can be a director who doesn't – it's not that they don't want the lighting designer in there early. They don't think about it at that point. And where that is harmful to the lighting design is that if a set gets developed far enough – and then I'm brought in and there's actually no way to light the set because there's no room to put the lights. That's where it's a big problem. Sometimes it's better when they, the director and the set designer have worked through so much before the lighting designer is involved because they, um, they've, flushed out a lot of, they've flushed out a lot of ideas and then comes in another voice. You know, rather than all the voices being in the room together at the beginning, it's like a producer who – waits a couple of weeks before they come back and look at a show. It's a more objective eye. So then in comes the new objective eye, which is the lighting designer. But let me ask you, one of the the elements of lighting design is the way in which a lighting designer can manipulate color, both the color of the light and the way the light plays on the colors of the set and costumes. Is it problematic if you come in too late in the process because you haven't been able to say, if you make it that color, I can't do this, or if I use this on that, it's not going to look that color. It's super problematic. I mean, that is, it's, that's a terrible situation to be in, and I've been in it, because then um, not only do you appear negative because you're saying everything that they've done is has to be redone in order to make it lightable. But um, the product's never as good that way. Really, I guess how I feel about it is the earlier a lighting designer is brought in, the better. Definitely the earlier, the better. Let's talk about a couple of shows by way of example. 
in terms of understanding, you know, how you've, you've worked on them. Let's, let's start with Sister Act because I'm, I'm curious about that and that's coming up. Now, did you work on Sister Act in England? Yes. Okay. The director of the show has changed. There's been work on the show subsequently and presumably there is going to be yet more coming. So you conceived of your design based on a certain set of expectations, particularly by a director. I don't know if the, if the scene design or the costume designs are changing at all. But presumably, Jerry Zachs is going to want some different things in the show. Do you ultimately reconceive lighting design in that case or is it about simply adapting your work? Uh, in this particular case, Jerry's a good example of somebody who brings you in nice and early. So anything that he's changing, I know what it is already. Anything that he's kind of keeping the same, I know what that is. So uh, at this point, there are some things that are staying the same in the show. So I would say that the light plot, meaning where we put the lights, is probably – 60% what we had, not even, maybe let's call it 50% since I'm into percentages today, 50% what it was in London and then it'll be 50% It'll be fifty different than what was in London. Mm-hmm. And also that was a show where the director also – when we did it in London, the director brought me in very early to work with the set designer and it was incredibly helpful. I think I had contradicted myself earlier because I said that sometimes it's good, you know, to have the objective eye come in later. But I think to clarify that, because I feel a great need to, that um, not that much later. If it's Mm -hmm. too late, it's too late. Right. Well, on the one hand, the set designer wants to be able to be free to create the space which you are going to light. And if you're sitting there from the word go saying, oh, you can't do that. I can't light from there. That's right. That's a problem. By the same token, you don't want to come in so late. That you know, there it's already in the shop, and you literally have lost positions. Do you know, Howard? You've hit the nail on the head. That's, ex- that's exactly right. That's why the process. That's exactly right. That's why the process of the set designer and the director. I I, I cherish that process for them, and the costume designer also, actually. But that doesn't affect me in the same way. That they need to have their time together without somebody saying, oh, my God, if you put that there, how am I going to light it? Because sets tend to evolve as time goes on between a director and a and a set designer where they become lightable if it's a set designer who is light-friendly, who understands what they need in order to get their set lit. And it e- starts to evolve into something that becomes lightable. Had I been sitting there with them saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, then who, nobody wants those kind of creative restraints that early. Hmm. So let's also – let me ask about Elf. Now, Elf uses um, a lot of relatively flat scenery, a lot of forced perspective painting, things like that. Does that create a different job for you than something that's more – fully 3D realized. Oh, a- absolutely. It's completely different actually. Um, let's see the best way to describe it. It is – the light plot from Elf is for instance completely different than the light plot for The Little Mermaid might have 
been or a completely different than the Adams family, which you had mentioned earlier, because um, it's the lighting for the of the Adams family is very sculptural, which means um, well, let me back up to Elf. Elf, because it's all flat painted, uh, it means that the lights need to light the scenery mostly from the front, mostly flat on. If you come from the side, it's uh, it. How do I describe it to the lay audience? It, I'm right here. Okay, <laughs> so it, go ahead. Well, it's um, okay. How about this? Let's say you had a Van Gogh painting sitting in your um, living room. If we could all be, we're so really lucky. imagining here now, but okay. And he has all that texture on his on the on his painting. If you took a light from the side, you would pull out all that texture. If you take a light from the front. You wouldn't even know that texture was there. It flattens it out. Go try it at home. I swear it's true. With everyone with their Van Goghs, go try it. Yes, yes, please do. So that's what I mean. It's lit from a completely different direction is really what it comes down to. Hmm. And you, the other thing about Elf, which is a good example about sort of an overview of lighting design in the mind of Natasha Katz, is that there, you must light the scenery and then you must light the people that they are two different entities which then interact in the show. So they have to be separated so that you can either see the actor, you can see the scenery, but so that you can find a balance between the two of them. Hmm. It's very hard to talk conceptually about lighting design only through words without showing it. But I was very interested. You had commented when you were working on the musical Sweet Smell of Success that – You'd always wanted to do film noir for the theater. So what was the approach that you then had to take in order to achieve that on stage? Because film noir, we associate with being simply black and white. But nothing in the theater, starting with human skin, unless you literally paint it white – is going to be full black and white. So how do you achieve film noir on the stage? Yeah, well, I actually, I think we did a pretty good job of it on Sweet Smell of Success. But part of it was the costumes were, they weren't black and white, but they did stay within a very limited color palette. So it was black, white, and gray pretty much. Um, The set was essentially black and white. Um, The props were all pretty much black and white. Uh, so that is really a big part of it. Um, that uh, see all that it's all the surrounding things or all the key things, which is the set, the costumes, and the um, props that inform. Because you talked about color earlier, what kind of colors a lighting designer is going to pick? We don't pick the same colors for every single show. As a matter of fact, that show took place at night except for the very end of the show. And normally I might have some warm colors in um, the lights, but they were all sort of different tones of light blue, different tones of white, different tones of um, sort of ambers so that everything um, that that's, was the film no- – film noir way of doing it. It mm-hmm. was done through color. We did go to a few nightclubs in the middle of the show. And actually, I always said to myself about that show that I didn't know that you could do film noir in color. And what I mean by that is this is really going to be perplexing. But what happened was that because the show took on this feeling of film noir and Nick directed it in a way that 
had that feeling, which also meant sometimes somebody could be in shadow because if you watch all these film noir movies, you know their faces are lit, but the rest of their bodies aren't lit. Well, that's much harder to do. And the cigarette smoke wafting out of the shadows. That's exactly right. Into the light. If only. I mean, I am jealous of TV and film designers all the time because they all they need to do is hide the lights from the camera's eye. So they get all sorts of different angles that we can't get. Hmm. We have to hide the lights from the entire audience. So um, that a lot of that film noir was a light that was two inches away from somebody's head. All those Greta Garbo shots were so contained and we can't do that in the theater hmm. in the same way. Also, we have to fill a full – an audience of 1,500 has to be able to see somebody's face while in a film noir film – it's big and it's big either on your TV set these days or in the movie. But the color, um, what happened was you felt the whole show was so film noir that even when we went to the nightclub and used color, it still felt that it was in the style of film noir, which is something I've learned more as a lighting designer too, which is that if you get a tone and a style of a piece, it can carry you through all sorts of – it can carry the entire show um, through – uh, the the tone of the show gets carried through that way, which means the tone of the lighting gets carried through. Do you talk in that kind of language, in the language of reference points when you start to work with a director? Because on a certain level, what you do is abstract. Understanding lighting until you see it is very difficult. So when you talk about a show with a director, with other designers, do you say, you know, I wanted to look, do you remember this scene either in another show or in a movie or in a TV show so that at least people can get some idea of what you're going for? I think that we we talk like that all the time actually because of exactly what you said, which is that we have nothing to show other than maybe a past show that somebody's seen. But I think that to have a broad frame of reference as a lighting designer is a fantastic thing to have, meaning from contemporary music videos to artwork, to film, to even books can be a good reference um, in terms of, you know, if somebody talks about Charles Dickens, I'd like it to look like a Charles Dickens book. Now that's, you're looking at me like, what are you talking about? But, you know, I think what goes through a lot of people's minds, um, see, this is the other thing too. I can't help but think that people would start to think about the Charles Dickens movies and does it look like this version of Great Expectations or that version of Great well, Expectations? Well, I think that that's what happens a lot is that you say – the director says that and you think, oh my god, do you mean the one – the black and white version with – or do you mean the – and then that spurs is it a Simmons whole other – Is it Gwyneth Paltrow? That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So so all of those things are – every every single reference that you have that you are able to talk to a director about can lead you somewhere. When I did Country Girl with Mike Nichols, actually, he said, oh, my God, we did it. We actually made an Edward Hopper painting. It was absolutely – it was it was huh. what he wanted it to look like. He and Tim Hatley, the set designer, was an Edward Hopper painting. So I built streaks of shadows into the wall. I mean, we... we well, now that you say it, I go, oh, of course. I didn't consciously think it at the time, but now that you've given it away, I go, sure. Yeah, I hope that's Because I know okay. those paintings. Yeah, no, and it was, it was, I mean, Nighthawk was, without a doubt, emotionally and physically what Mike was going for in the show. Hmm. 
We keep talking about collaboration and you had a very interesting collaboration on Coast of Utopia in which each part of Utopia had a different lighting designer. Even though it was the same set designers, there's a pair of set designers, and it was the same costume designer throughout, what was the impetus, first of all, for using three different designers? Why wasn't there a single lighting designer? I think, honestly, one one lighting designer, it wasn't me, was asked to do all three and his schedule couldn't do it. Hmm. So then they came up with this idea of using three different lighting designers. And um, I think it was a great idea, actually. Well, how then, since we're talking so much about the language of conversation and visual, how do three different designers approach the same set, same costume, the same actors and produce a cohesive design? Two things about that. The first is is that the three of us, Brian McDevitt and Ken Posner and myself, we sat down together and worked out the light plot together. And I think that what was intriguing to all three of us is what we could learn from each other also, not just at a cocktail party, but actually getting down and dirty and doing the work together. And it was incredible for me because I learned an awful lot from them. And um, also we had to collaborate in a different way, which is normally you're collaborating with a set designer or with a – so we had to collaborate together. And then we also had to have the – we had the same kind of – then we collectively had to collaborate with the set designer, collectively had to collaborate with the director early on. But then what happened is Coast of Utopia is, yes, it's all the same set designers, but each each piece had its own set of scenery. The scenery – so I'm repeating myself, but the scenery was different for every single one. Hmm. It had the same sort the of – The overall environment Overall was environment the was the same, but the scenery – The pieces were different. Were different. Hmm. So we were able – so what we really did together, the three of us, I think, was essentially get a repertory light plot um, together, meaning a light plot that you – know, there are plenty of theaters that do that where you have to just use the lighting that's there. So we made up what the, we, the lighting that we were going to use that was there. So we made up our light plot the three of us. And then after the lights were hung and Brian did the first show, we were all on our own, which is that then Ken did the second piece and I did the third piece. And, um, you know, I think it was stimulating to Jack, I hope. It Jack was O'Brien, yeah, directed. to Jack O'Brien and to the set designers to have a different voice come in in, in, each, in each piece. But I think what we all tried to do was still try to keep the same tone that we talked about early on. That we, you know, we're chameleons in a way, lighting designers. We um, uh, have to adapt to a lot of things, although we have our own voice. There's no question about it. But I think the voice got – had to be suppressed. The personal voice had to be suppressed a little bit in order for the overall piece to feel cohesive. Since you raised that, there are certainly set designers that I can think of where I'd say – it's their kind of show. There are certainly costume designers that I think of if you say, okay, it's set in the late 1800s and it needs beautiful flowing women's costumes. There are certain people I will think of. Is there any Natasha Katz type of show? I, I don't actually know the answer to that, believe it or not. It depends. It's very funny. I've given a lot of thought to that. I think we are chameleons. I do – I am there to serve the show. There's no question about it. 
I think that I have a certain style. I don't know how to articulate it. I wish I could. Maybe somebody else could do it for me. I um, I love doing musicals, and um, I think that everyone I do, I get better at because you learn something every single time. But I love doing plays, and um, they're all so informed by they're all informed by the director and the play and the piece and. I don't know. You'll have to ask another guest what my style is because I can't. I really can't. I really can't answer it. I don't know the answer to that question. Well, corollary to it, one of the designers I think you've worked with a few times is Bob Crowley. Yes. And what develops between you and Bob? Does something develop that allows you to work in a different way than when you're working with a designer for the first time? You know, that's another really good question, Howard, because Bob and I, um, I have done a lot of shows with him and I, that's another turning point in my life was the day I met him on the Cape Man. I feel like we have a very special um, artistic relationship. A lot is left unsaid as a matter of fact, but his set is for sure the impetus of what I end up doing. It's very different working with Bob now because I've worked with him on so many shows that then working with a set designer for the first time. It's hard working with a set designer for the first time because you don't know them. It's a very personal, collaborative experience between a lighting designer and a set designer. So if you don't know them, it's like you know you end up spending more time with them than you do somebody that you're, you live with or you're married to. So It's just a very personal relationship and to do it for the first time is the hardest time. So all these years with Bob um, have – listen, I think he's an extraordinary set designer. I don't know what else to say and he's just made me a better lighting designer. I remember a moment very well on Aida where I – very early on, we started to introduce a lot of color in the lighting in one of the numbers and it felt wrong to me because – it just felt like we were sort of imposing a kind of Broadway feel to a show that didn't deserve um, all that kind of color and quick changes, quick lighting changes. Do you and remember what the number was? I'm, I think I know, but I'm, I'm mm, it, It's uh, Build Another Pyramid. Oh, okay. uh, you, I bet you were thinking of the one in – I was thinking of Amneris's number. Yeah, yeah. No, that one we always sort of knew that we had – that that was a little out of the box, so to speak, that mm-hmm. it was so crazy that we were going to do something like that. But this was earlier on. See, interestingly enough, that seems obvious. But this other one, build another pyramid is we put a ton of color on the psych. We put a lot of color on the actors while they were – it was very severe, like red from one side and purple from another side. And I was very self-conscious about it. And Bob was sitting a couple rows behind me. But he doesn't come over to me a lot to say, oh, do this, do that. You know, certain set designers do and certain don't. And he must have felt me from across the room and he walked over to me and he just whispered in my ear. He said, darling, go for it. And all of a sudden I was liberated to at least give it a try Hmm. because that's the other great thing about lighting design that set design and costume design can't really do is that we can try something right at the moment. If they want to try a costume from a different period, they have to build it and spend a lot of money. If a set designer feels like they wished, oh, God, it was blue instead of red, they have to get out a paintbrush and repaint it. What we can do on the spot is change from one color to another, not to say change a complete concept, but a lot of times people don't know until you look at it. 
Some people say that's the big secret of lighting design is that even lighting designers don't know until you really take a look at it. I believe that about 80%, but a lot of unbelievable things happen just at the moment where you never expected the red to react to that costume the way it it does or to look the way it did on a piece of scenery. Hmm. Earlier on, you said you were trying to explain something for the lay person. So as a lay person, when it comes to lighting design, certainly, I want to ask, very often people are most aware of lighting when the lighting is showy. Sometimes even when you actually see the instruments on stage, Mm. creating light. Is there a desire on your part for the audience to understand or register what you are doing? Do you want them to notice the lighting? Um, You know, I used to not want them to. And then I went through a period of wanting them to. I hope it wasn't ego that drove that. I think it was more understanding that lighting could play a much bigger role in the storytelling of a piece, of piece of theater. I think I actually do believe deeply what I'm about to say, which is that I think that if you become too recessive as a lighting designer, you're not helping the storytelling. Aida might be a very good example of all that. Build another pyramid, which, you know, I know nobody's going to know what I'm talking about because in terms of the show or remember the number. But what the lighting did by going to that go for it place was show the emotion of the workers that were in the pyramid of going from place to place. Because once you change an angle in lighting, very often you feel like you're somewhere else. We use gobos to say that now we're in this part of the castle or pyramid and now we're in that part of the pyramid. So it took on an incredibly emotional aspect uh, and it also reverberated with the song. It sort of played hand in glove with the song, which we haven't even talked about how music plays into lighting design. But that in that particular case, had I just – or we is a better way to put it because I really didn't do that alone. Wayne Salento was with me every second and Bob and the director, had we not made the lighting so showy there, I think that there would have been an emotional aspect of the show that would have been lost. You're looking perplexed because I'm talking in lighting designer. I'm not perplexed at all. I'm simply going to ask the obvious next question. So, Natasha, how does music play into lighting design? <laughs> oh. um, a big part of lighting is definitely where you look. It helps you tell you where you look. It is emotionally – it can define an emotion for an audience without – it's very subliminal that way. So there's a case where you say, okay, you don't even realize what the lighting is doing. Um, Music and light in – even in a play, but let's talk about a musical right now, is that if you grab the emotional content of the music, you're – it's fantastic. Then what starts to happen is the music modulates. It goes from major to minor or somebody – or there's a modulation where um, something's more exciting for – in the music, it gets more exciting. Well, all these things, um, I believe, is where there should be a light change because it helps the emotion of the moment. So I think that lighting – when I said hand in glove, I truly believe that. I mean I think that we are musicians in our own right – or we are the backup band. How's that <laughs> to uh, the music? It's in a, a nice metaphor. Tell me, let's use Adam's Family, currently running show. Is there a moment you can point to in Adam's Family where 
the music dictated that you do, as you say, a change, but from what and to what? Um, the uh, opening number is um, they're in a graveyard and there are a lot of the dead ancestors come out of a crypt and it starts extremely, extremely spooky. And then the so the the darkly lit in blues and dark colors, and then as the ancestors come out of their crypt, we go into a big funny musical number. So the lighting immediately changes to, um, simply put, it gets bright and brassy, and um, you still believe you're in the crypt because in the uh, graveyard. I'm sorry because we established that. But within a moment, it goes from spooky to brightly colored lit lighting. Hmm. And the music, of course, has taken the change in tone. So the lighting oh, changes in tone. But costumes right. don't change and the set doesn't change. That's right. Um, perhaps the movement of the actors changes. The choreography can change at that point. That's but right. Well, that's, that's also a big part of it too is, I mean, add into music choreography and then you're talking about three people working together, a choreographer – the music and the lighting designer. Hmm. Well, I think we've only skimmed the surface and speaking about lighting and not seeing lighting is probably impossible. But this has been fascinating and educational for me and Natasha Katz. I just want to thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you very much for having me. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening. And no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.